and welcome to the American Age Podcast. Today we will be continuing our discussion about public outrage, public anger. And if you tuned in last time, we were in the midst of our conversation and agreed early on that we would pick up in a part two because there was a lot to unpack, as I'm sure is unsurprising to anyone that at all pays attention to social media or media, uh, mainstream professional media. And Seth's going to lead us in because he has uh, some stuff to say. And uh, we'll begin. Seth, welcome. Good to see you. Thanks. Good to see you. I wanted to pick up from where we left off in the conversation last time, but I won't exactly because I think where we left it was at the place where we were about to talk about this, what I think are in the important points that Glenn Greenwald made in his uh, article for The Intercept. But I actually want to start by talking about this moment in the conversation when I gave the anecdote about attending a particular performance of Sean Leonardo's and how the activists responded to me essentially, essentially saying that I believe that there were things that they did that reminded me of supporters of the current president. Mm-hmm. I should have admitted, and I think it's really important to do so, that I was angry, that at the time I wrote that, I was acting from anger. And mm. I do think that, again, that my characterization of them was not wrong, was not inaccurate. Uh, but I have to acknowledge that there is a way in which I think anger begets anger. Mind you, at the same time, I think lots of things beget anger. I think complicity begets anger. I think (laughs) being humble begets anger. I think there's a way in which American public culture, uh, all the things that you mentioned in the initial uh, talk, your initial um, uh, introduction tonight, social media, other other forms of media, particularly mainstream news outlets, anger seems to dominate the ways that we respond to each other in the public sphere, sphere when we disagree. Mind you, when we don't disagree, that's all well and good. But mm. I want to say, one... We're capable of much more nuanced responses than just anger or pleasure. Mm-hmm. I mean, God damn it, we're adults. We're adult, yeah, absolutely, semi-rational human beings most of the time. <laughs> yeah, one would hope. Right? Yeah, semi semi-rational, right? So I'm so I'm hedging it already. We can do more than simply say, "You suck." Or mm. some version of your illegitimate. Well, I think most of the time what we're actually saying is you're, you're illegitimate. That what you are and what you say is not valid. Uh, so, and I think we need to get away from that. Yeah, I agree. So I actually, I, I want to kind of rhetorically bookmark something I'd like to come back to because when you had initially sent me the topic for discussion, um, the first thing I thought of was uh, a book by Mary Douglas called Purity and Danger, the Anthropologist. And she looks at um, 
she has this whole grid argument and looks at uh, Leviticus in the Old Testament and comes up with this schema, which she honestly later strongly uh, amended but in, in a preface to the book later, like 20 years later, but which is essentially this, that, um, that uh, dietary, and I'm going to broaden this out in a second, dietary prescriptions, as in, you know, don't eat, you know, milk and eggs at the same time, you know, whatever the, you know, keeping kosher laws. I think I just butchered that. So I apologize to all of my uh, Jewish listeners. Uh, But I think it's milk and meat, basically. Yeah. No no milk with meat. Yeah. Milk of the kid and all this stuff. So uh, basically what this was a a way of doing was to demarcate the community. And it's a a more complicated argument than that. But um, and it's a compelling argument. But for the purposes of this, that it it is a way to set aside who we are from other people. And there is a way in which that indignation that one feels at someone using uh, the wrong word at the wrong time uh, and the kind of prick that that provokes and the moral outrage that follows is a way of demarcating communities. So let me just bookmark that for a second. That was the mm-hmm. first thing I thought of when you asked about mm-hmm. the question. Mm-hmm. I actually want to mm-hmm. go back and and ask you a more direct, personal question. Mm-hmm. Why were you angry when you wrote the Sean Leonardo piece? Well, to be clear, I was partly angry at the activists. I was also quite taken with the work that Sean had done. And by taken with, I mean, I felt emotionally supported. I felt seen and recognized by him. Mm-hmm. The, the, it, the performance, again, to, to just reiterate in case listeners um, who are listening, who are paying attention the, the to The crazy podcast, possibility that the people did not listen to our, our previous podcast. The previous one, right. <laughs> right. Basically, in his, in his performance, he taught people skills, techniques of getting out of a chokehold or dodging a punch and getting away. Essentially, survival techniques for uh, right. people, particularly geared towards people of color and women in neighborhoods that are beleaguered. Um, that are under stress. So part of the piece was very much embedded in that feeling of finding someone who was essentially expressing care for me. Mm. And I, I oh, really that's wonderful. Deeply, yeah, I deeply appreciated that. So I wrote that most of the piece that way. Why it, I was I so also, angry... Can I also in a fatherly way, right? Which is also something, a kind of engagement. Yeah, you you don't agree. I was going to say is is a kind of engagement that um, I think there is a dearth of in in Western culture right now. Well, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, certainly among among men, right? But and I'm not sure that I'm willing to call it fatherly. There's something I felt like it was brotherly, even though I don't have a brother. Um, I think you. And people like Lawrence and, and Damien have, or have been some of the men in my life who have come as close to that as possible. But I felt a nurturing mm-hmm. there, a nurturing attitude. Fathers can be so, nurturing. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. But <laughs> right, but there's a but there's a kind of mentorship kind of relationship implicated by the or implied by the term father, mm, and I yeah, didn't feel. Right. And, and even though he was kind of mentoring me, he was teaching me something. I didn't feel that. I felt it right. was more, it just felt more horizontal rather than mm. sort of vertical is, is the easiest that way. Makes to that. that makes sense. That makes sense to me. Right. So why I was so angry was that they expressed contempt for the other opinions in the room. Not only mine. I mean, I, mm. I said at saying something about thinking differently about policing to just make it short. But when other, I saw the woman next to me hesitate. She said something about her own identity and how she felt that that wasn't being validated in certain circles. And the way the woman on stage responded to her, she wasn't really on stage. She was at the center of the, of the room. She was, she was essentially holding court. Mm-hmm. The way that that woman responded to the woman who was next to me was contemptuous. And that made me angry because mm. I thought, one, how is it possible for you to represent yourself as activists who are in a position to care for, to guide a community towards essentially some greater freedom? That's what you want to do, right? Was there was there any racial coding going on with uh, mm. the the woman that was in the center with you that was holding court? Was she white? Was she no? She was black, but 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 she was she but she she spoke as if well, there, as I should say I should say there were three activists. There was um, Shailene Rodriguez, and there was um, this woman whose name I'm not remembering anymore, and a third person named I think Altindor. Uh, a man, um, the woman, the older woman, was just contemptuous, um, and she she did, it was the conversation was racially coded in that she had lots of things to say about what how we should refer to black and brown people. She said so, she was saying something about how the term people of color wasn't exactly kosher with her. Whatever. The point being that there was. A response from her that essentially invalidated all the other responses in the room that didn't contempt. Jibe. You called it right. last time contempt. Yeah, right? yeah, and she was contemptuous about it, and I and that makes me angry. It makes me sad and angry. But my response was anger primarily to that because that is precisely the opposite of what I think they are purporting to do in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it's also personally for me really just really hard to deal with because my father, you know, was mm. treating me with contempt at certain mm. key points in my childhood. And right. I'm still in some ways, I suppose, wounded by that. Mm. So it's important for me to acknowledge that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, to, to, to take a step back, um, and sort of just look at it from a more anthropological point of view. I mean, we're pro-social primates, right? So we are particularly calibrated to um, 
pick up on iniquity and to to either internalize that um, that registration to react against it to, to provoke us in whatever way that we happen to provoke it uh, or in whatever way it happens to be provoked. So, you know, the fact, you know, you, you brought up your father and, uh, and obviously that is a particularly intimate relationship and that happens, you know, you're, you're a kid, you're particularly vulnerable, like you don't have your armor yet, right? So right, like when you're right. an adult, you've got your sword and your shield and your armor, you're like, fuck right. this, fuck them, fuck that, right? But, right. you know, when you're a kid, you're pretty exposed, you don't have those things. And so the, it's, it's really the chances of that becoming internalized, that becoming some kind of internal narrative about yourself and about your place and position this, in the world. Is, I mean, this is this is one of the, and not to get sidetracked, but I mean, this is, this is one of the things that I am most sympathetic, even though on practice, I want to say, okay, what now when it comes to someone putting all their chips in on um, uh, racial uh, politics, anti-colonialism, these kind of arguments. Like, I am very actually, I'm very sympathetic to those arguments because, like, what must that be like to be a group of people that are circumscribed and defined in such a way as they are understood internally and externally as being less than? Right. Like, do that for 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, and you fuck some shit up. Like you right. really like this is you really uh, yeah. this is not a recipe for uh, an empowered, reasonable uh, engagement with a group of people. I so I, I'm I have a lot of sympathy for that, and not just sympathy. Like I get that. So okay, fine. So let's bring it back to let's bring it back to your in your interaction with the activists and Sharon Leonardo. And let's grant that, and and we're going to bracket for a second, whatever interpersonal, internal psychological issues might have been going on with those other activists and and how haughty they felt and and how contemptuous they were. Let's say that they were fully, honestly, reasonably expressing three or four hundred years of outrage. Let's just grant them that. Okay. What next? Where, where do we, this is what I feel like, this is where I feel like your indignation comes from. How, I mean, being someone that is eminently reasonable and sensitive, you, you want, okay, what do I say now? Like how, where do we enter this conversation together to, or even, or even, or even more, uh, forward looking, where, where are you going now, mm-hmm. like, what do you want to do with this community? Because you say things that are provocative and non-canonical, like we need to end all policing in our neighborhood now. We need because the police are an occupying force. That's Great. nonsense, by the way. But right, right, no, 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 no I'm with, no, I'm with you. I'm same page, same sheet of music. My question is, what are you going to do now if yeah. you really want to? hold hands with this community and lead them out of the, the wilderness they've been in for not 40 years, but 300 years. Like, wh- wh- how are you going to do this? Like, yeah. my indignation comes from this place of, I respond to contempt, but I also res- I respond to injustice. Mm-hmm. Uh, response, I should say, to mm-hmm. injustice, to feeling like 
they were being unjust to other people in the room, and also to a sense of just sheer bewilderment and indignation that you would present yourself as someone who's willing to do this work, but then you show up in a room and you don't do the work. Mm-hmm. You do something else, mm-hmm. and but you call it activism. Mm-hmm. That's that's dishonest. Slacktivism is what uh, someone much younger than me told me. I mean, it's not that I'd never heard this term, but we were um, yeah. uh, we were discussing what to do with a project that we're starting, and mm-hmm. it's it's about philanthropic educational engagement. And she was saying she's in her twenties, and she mm. was saying that a lot of her friends and you know fairly well off privileged backgrounds, but you know these are people that they're engaged. They want to do something good. They want to like make something in the world that is edifying within the world. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, she she went off for a few minutes about this issue of slacktivism. And, mm-hmm. and they're really, and I hadn't, she caused me to think about it for a moment, to, to pause and, and, and think about it, that there really is, there is a concrete difference between expressing an opinion between venting or advertising moral outrage and doing the work to rectify the iniquity that has pricked your conscience, right? There, there's mm-hmm. a difference. There is, there's a risk involved. Um, what Stuart Hall used to call the contingency of failure, right? Mm-hmm. We might fail. We probably mm-hmm. will fail, right? Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's probably not going to work out. So, you know, the, civil rights marches and, you know, and that was in the 60s. But this was after a hundred years of mm-hmm. of people speaking out and not riding in the right section of the bus and mm. sitting at the wrong counters and expressing mm. moral, you know, indignation or outrage. I mean, this is one of the thing that, things that bothers me about contemporary public discourse is they, they want to localize the activities too much as mm-hmm. if... Martin Luther King just sort of like appeared like mm-hmm. ex nihilo, right? Just like sort of <laughs> here I am, like as mm-hmm. the savior. I mean, they really like, I know you like to bring, I mean, it's really kind of a Judeo-Christian idea, right? So like, you know, mm-hmm. God's finger comes down and inseminates some humans mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know, wisdom spreads out into the world. But no, I mean, King came out of an Atlanta that had, that had for what, a hundred years, not quite a hundred years, but had built a strong black community around economic right. success and pride right. and engagement. Right. And right. that's what he came out of, right? right? I mean, that that culture, right, that 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 empowered people to act in the mm-hmm. world in that way. And I mm-hmm. I don't when I look around at my contemporaries, when I look around at my peers, whether it's in the mm-hmm. academy or whether it's, you know, maybe peers that I don't know but that are writing for The Atlantic or The New Yorker or something like that, what, where are you engaging? Where is your work in the mm-hmm. world? Like, not just mm-hmm. what are your opinions. Like, I can have the shiny opinions too, right? I know mm-hmm. you were, you know, I know the right fork to use at the table. Mm-hmm. But but what are we doing to engage with one another, right? Uh, well, I sorry. think that's, that's precisely the question that needs to be posed to Glenn Greenwald. Glenn Greenwald, I should say, for this article in The Intercept. Because here's, here's can, you, can you give us the title of the article? 
Sure. Um, it's, oh, actually, I don't have it written here. Um, I can find it. Um, and I, I actually, I so have in- it because I read it right before we, we got started. So the Petulant Entitlement Syn- Syndrome of Journalists, and that's uh, January two, uh, 28th, 2015 in The Intercept. Okay, great. Um, so basically, he takes issue with Jonathan Chait's quote-unquote denunciation of the PC language police. But where he ends up um, is precisely this place where I think the question is begged, the question that you've posed. Because where he ends up is, he says, and I'll, and I'll, I'll quote him, it's the third paragraph from the end. It also proves that one of the best aspects of the internet is that it gives voice to people who are not emphasis his, credentialed, meaning not molded through the homogenizing grinder of establishment media outlets. Now, here's the thing. For mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. he's partly right. Whenever you, I hear, I hear a congressperson, senator or representative, in some cases, people from state houses, governors and on down, speak publicly. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what to do with myself. I'm so, I'm not angry. I'm just, I just, I'm, I'm pushed to despair because they don't say anything. <laughs> they don't say anything of worth. Uh, <laughs> yes, well, this legislative process is just going through. You know, the wheels are turning. We, we've got to get these members on the floor to discuss this. And that's the only way that this thing is, this initiative is really going to get anywhere. Uh, so, so they asked him a direct question. So, so Senator Paul Ryan, how is it possible to get this legislation for the Dreamers passed if the president, the, the, the person who's the figurehead of your party, expresses uh, opinions that appear to be racist. Mm -hmm. And he answers, well, well, look, I mean, there's no way that we're going to get anywhere on this question if we just go around calling the president racist. I mean, that's just not possible. Like, you're not dealing with what's in front of you. Mm -hmm. You're not actually engaging with me if I'm posing a question to you. What you're doing is you're deflecting, avoiding, and you're just reading from a script that you want to read, mm-hmm. um, that you want to disseminate publicly. So Glenn, Glenn Greenwald has a point in that people who are not credentialed do sometimes have the intellectual wherewithal to frame situations, to respond to questions, to decisively describe the thing that is happening to us right now mm-hmm. in ways that are actually insightful. And I'm thinking of the comedian, actually, Russell Brand. Mm-hmm. He, he appeared on Morning Joe, I think it was, uh, and he was I, devastating. I know. He was devastating because he cut through the bullshit. He said, look at, what, look at the kind of question you're asking me. Look at, look at the kind of conversation you expect us to carry on. This is, this is just... This is, this is just, it's entertainment. If you want me to be the dancing bear, and I don't want to do it. I, you know what so, I remember from that appearance was uh, Mika mm-hmm. Brzezinski was basically giving a hand job to the cup she had yes. in front of her, which she called her out on, which I thought was, it was uh, um, I thought it gave me, gave me a lot of joy. I thought that that was yeah. quite funny that he did that. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so 
he has Greenwald has a point. But my problem is that most of the people, from what I can tell, reading the comments and being in media and having to deal with people who respond to what I've written on the Hyperallergic site, most of the people, it seems to me, who are not credentialed come from this place of not being particularly, one, rigorous with their thinking, and two, clear about what they want. Mm-hmm. I have to say, amongst credentialed people, I haven't seen a whole lot of clarity about what they want either. I, I mean, mm. I think when you follow a lot of arguments that are mm. maybe in vogue is too strong, certainly in vogue 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but definitely mm. still um, regularly bantied about at conferences. And I'm talking, you know, fill in the blank. Foucault, Power, yeah, Der- Derrida, uh, and uh, Difference, and, uh, and yeah, it's so, logocentrism. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, it's all it's all around. It's all out there. I I don't really feel like there's a whole lot of thinking through anywhere. I think it's a stranger to every social group I know. Thinking yeah. through and actually having uh, a coherent worldview that potentially implicates oneself in the hot mess that is human culture making uh Mm -hmm. it's just it's uncommon it's uncommon for everyone and i have to say i mean to and and i know that you actually agree with this we've had conversations around this so i mean i i think your your indictment of of um kind of uncredentialed uh, half-baked thinking, I, of course I buy that, I know that's true, I read the board, I read some of your articles, I see, like, you know, I see some of these these comments. I engaged with one of them one time, I remember this a couple years right. ago. Right. Um, but I also find a great deal of intelligence and sobriety and wisdom amongst people that don't have uh, letters after their name. And just... Like who? Uh, uh, so, like, specific people that I've met. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. my parents, for example. I mean, this is okay. starting to get, like, a little too personal. But uh, but p- other people aren't necessarily going to care. But, um, yeah, I mean, my parents, like, my dad came from nothing. And I don't mean, like, my dad came from nothing. He worked himself up and he's, like, an oil tycoon or some bullshit American right. story like that. Like, <laughs> right, my parents... Right, right. You know, they struggle with financial discipline. They, um, I mean, all the rest of it. But my dad came from some fucked up shit, like just bad news. And he made, you know, one of the things that, you know, I I get tired of, I I get a little tired of kicking around middle class aspirations. This is something you get from like Slava Zizek and stuff like that. You're like, Mm -hmm. oh, you middle class, empty Coke bottles and like, you know... (laughs) elevator <laughs> doors that don't work appropriately or whatever Daffy Duck bullshit he throws at the wall to see if yeah, it sticks. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you know what? There is nothing wrong with middle-class aspirations. My yeah. parents love being at home. They love, yeah. like, their house. And you know yeah. what? I, I wish that for all people. I want yes. everyone that wants that I want yeah. that for them. Any people that don't, I don't feel like they should be looked down on for not wanting that. If you want to live in a fucking commune and share your children and your genitals, like, I don't care. I feel like <laughs> you should have space to do that. Buy some property, do whatever you need to do. I, it doesn't make any difference to me. But right. 
So you asked for U.S. specifically. So my parents, you know, I mean, and I could probably name some other people if if we had time and it wasn't, you know, like we weren't dealing with a finite amount of time with the podcast. But um, I, I just, I really, I find wisdom and I hesitate to use it because it's a word that is like borders on cliche uh, in intellectual circles. Uh, but fuck that. I think it matters. And I think that wisdom... Uh, does not visit any group of people frequently. Um, And I don't care how much education you have. I don't care how well you understand the Mafia or the Holocaust or the subjection of peoples across South Asia. Wisdom does not come at the end of that. Wisdom comes from humility. Yeah, I I hear you. I hear you. And... um... For the most part, I agree with you. I, I do think that the, I can think of several people in my life who I would tend not to rely upon or go or seek advice from precisely because I don't think that they're humble enough. Mm-hmm. I think that they have a rather overblown sense of who they are and how important they are. At the same time, and I think really this is coextensive with my worldview and with the things that I need in order to operate well, Mm -hmm. I prefer to have distinct sentences recognizable out of this, plucked out of the swarm of white noise. And there's a swarm of white noise Mm -hmm. online and in public forums Mm -hmm. these days that I don't think ultimately benefits that quest for wisdom. I tend to want to call it rational thought, rational discussion. But I think we're I think they're essentially we're talking about very similar things. So let's let's use the word wisdom. I don't I think that that what's there's a, it's actually a, 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 a is it a cliche or a saying something like that like um, oh no 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 I've got it I remember now Fareed told this story hmm. about being Fareed at, Matuk is a friend of ours he teaches poetry at University of Austin Arizona, uh, Univers- no, I'm not, sorry, not, University of Arizona went got his MFA right. at University of Austin, right? That's University right. of Texas at Austin, sorry. Right. So he's telling this story about, told me this story about Philip Levine. Mm-hmm. Uh, being at a reading of his, and this was before the Iraq War. And it was after the, the, the reading, and he was taking questions, responding to people in the audience, and some guy said, well, what, don't you think, la, 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 Bush is correct, and we've got to head this off of the pass, and, you know, these people are part of the triangle of evil, axis of evil, the, <laughs> the, the poly, poly, the poly, <laughs> the isosceles of, evil, whatever the, the hell, of right, de- right, demonism right. or whatever. Right, right, whatever. Um, I, and Philip Levine said, he, I forget exactly what Fareed told me he said, but it was a very harsh response. He basically said, you need to shut up and sit down because you don't know what you're talking about. And then he ran through and ticked off the sort of reasonable points for opposing the war, which, you know, in hindsight, duh. Uh, 
But then the man sat down and he went on and then he came back to him. Philip mm-hmm. Levine came back to the man. He said, actually, I need to apologize. What I said, I said in anger and my anger prevented me from, uh, what was the word? From I think he used the word insight. Mm-hmm. My anger prevented me from No, clarity. My anger prevented me from clarity. I I really want to get to to the place in our culture where we can recognize that distinction, that you can be angry, and acting from anger is not necessarily always bad, but once it trips over into contempt, Mm -hmm. once you lose sight of the thing it is that you want... And maybe, and maybe I'm being too generous. Maybe I'm assuming that people do want to get to a, a place mm-hmm. of pride. Maybe they don't. Maybe they just want to be angry. Mm-hmm. Like, like because they're, there's pleasure they're, in indignation. I mean, there right, really is. There's right, real pleasure in, in moral indignation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 I, and you know, the, the sort of end of the spectrum of that, conti- or the end of that, one end of that continuum is the person who's so angry that they take up an AK-47 mm. and they go into a church mm. and, and blow everybody away, mm. who they think is standing in the way mm. of their fulfillment or happiness. Mm. I do think that we can... T- I, there, being credentialed is not a panacea. It will not cure our social ills. Mm. I'm not sure what will. In fact... I have to admit that this is, I've come to the point in the conversation where I'm actually really frustrated with myself because I don't, I've kind of hit a brick wall, right? I don't, there is nothing I can prescribe to heal the, the body politic. There's a way in which, and I'm reminded of this moment in Mad Men, the t- TV series, sure. uh, where Don Draper's character says to, or rather Don Draper, the character um, played by, what's his name? Jonathan uh, Hamm, I think is his name. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. Hamm. Says to um, the character played by Elizabeth Moss, who at some point was his secretary, he says, there's something in the American spirit that is broken. And you recognize that. And here he's telling her why mm-hmm. he wants her to come back to work for him, why mm-hmm. he needs her in his office, why he needs her inside. Mm-hmm. He says, you see it. Mm-hmm. You see the thing that is broken. And I feel that he put his finger on something, that there is real, and maybe it's, maybe it's, maybe it amounts to this. There's real, ever since the, the, the 60s, what, what we've had coming to us is a kind of demographic change that is a pace with a social change, a deep social change, mm-hmm. which, I mean, we can talk about this in different ways, but essentially is the end of white male supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of anger being generated around not just that deep social change, but all the sort of corollary sort of uh, uh, ripples that come out of that way. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I that I think there's a lot to recommend what you just said, and I, I basically agree with a lot of that. I would probably want to take it a step further and say that white heterosexual male 
supremacy, right? Because we probably need mm-hmm. to we probably need to add that in as well. Yeah, Hetero- heteronormativity is clearly something yes. that was is at the center of culture for a long time, at the center of American culture, Western culture for a long time. Right. Um, that it not only devastated um, white people, right, and and how they made sense of the world, it devastated exactly. everyone because yeah. if you don't have um, if if you don't have Malcolm X's white devil to, or I guess mm-hmm. I, Elijah Muhammad's white devil, right? Malcolm X sort of drifted mm-hmm. away from that, although not as much as people would like. But you know, Alex Haley mm-hmm. kind of softened mm-hmm. that from what I've read from some historians. But um, mm-hmm. that it's the world is simpler when you have an adversary, right? There's a reason that Manichaean religions. Uh, survived for so long in Central Asia. Um, There's a reason that that was taken up, and I'm talking about like Zoroastrianism, there's a reason that that was taken up, uh, although there were other Manichaean traditions too, but there's a reason that that was taken up and served as the kernel of Judaism, moved away from it, Christianity picked it back up, Islam revived it. Um, An enemy clarifies things, right? It's at no point in our... in the last hundred years, was it more clear to be an American than in 1942, in 1941? Like yeah. when we, the, the, yeah. you knew you were, even if you were, even if you were African-American, even if you were on the underside of what America represented, your ass was in yeah. the trenches getting shot at by Germans if you were, you know, right. an able-bodied male at that age. So right. an enemy right. clarifies an us and them. And there is a kind of certitude and um, calm that comes from knowing one's relationship to others because it's a very scary place to be, right? I mean, for all of those existential uh, reasons that have, you know, the French are so good at enumerating. Um, And when you take that away, so you pull, I mean, because yes, it's, and you know, and this is something obviously that uh, we would get pushback from or you may push back against as well. uh, clearly, white males still overrepresented in, you know, state houses and federal houses, on uh, in pews and and judgeships. And I'm not saying that that the the world. I'm not saying that that white heteronormativity and masculinity is not at the center still. But it, it we've mentioned this in other podcasts. It's clearly under threat, right? It, it's its perch is more precarious, and more and, and most importantly, and and I think and I don't think that this can be dismissed, and I don't think it can be ignored, though it is often glossed. No one, not even our current president, can make a white heteronormative masculine argument. He has to hide. He right. has to conceal what right. his actual worldview is, what his epistemology, right. his metaphysics, his ethical system, that has to be that's obscured. Right. That, right, because it's no longer valid. That's right. That's huge, huge, yeah. huge. The I fact agree. that, like, George Svichu cannot write, uh, like, uh, 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 what was the name of his book? I'll, I'll put it in the, I won't spend any time uh, hemming and hawing over it. I'll put it in the errata. But um, the fact that there cannot be, in the 21st century, a defense of of white ascendancy 
mm-hmm. is a massive tectonic shift in the culture. But, but Go ahead. I, well, I want to say, I want to actually sort of separate out what, we're, what you're saying and what I'm saying. And I think we're actually kind of arguing different things. Mm. I think I'm saying that part of the anger that gets gets amplified uh, on on media social media platforms di- digital social media platforms. It comes from there's something there being something broken in the American ethos. Mm-hmm. You're saying, I think, while acknowledging that, you're also saying there's something about that anger that is constitutive of the tribe, that you actually are angry at other people because you recognize them as the enemy, thereby recognizing people who you identify with as your fellow tribe's people. I'm so, so right? yeah, th- I mean, that's basically right. I guess the only thing I would say, and it probably was not clear at all from, from what I was, uh, my tangent, but I'm saying mm. that that anger has become free floating and detached from oh. its justifiable, easily identifiable target. And that that since you no longer have at the center of, of mm. the culture, at least that people can express in an mm. unapologetic or unconcealed way, mm. white ascendancy, I'll stop appending all the other adjectives, mm-hmm. because there is no space for that anymore, mm. that that, ang- and, and you can't, that anger has become detached, right? So, like, if you're, it's like 1955, like, mm-hmm. you are definitely, like, you can point at white people that have done some fucked up shit to you if you are living in the South right. or, honestly, in Chicago right. or anywhere else in the country. It's not, I mean, right. let's get away from the idea that racism was only bad in the South. That's, of course, nonsense. Right, of course. It's ridiculous. No, it, yeah. it was yeah, we know really that. bad in California. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. so it's, you could, that absolutely... You you knew like you were in contact with them, but we've talked about this before, and we you in the last podcast you sort of intimated, like those stories are becoming more attenuated. The mm-hmm. the unbridled racism, subjection mm-hmm. of your body because you are not a white body. Those stories mm-hmm. are becoming fewer. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm not saying that they there aren't still mm-hmm. too many of them. But that mm-hmm. and that anger and that rage has detached from the actual historical moment and is just sort of free floating mm-hmm. and is used to kind of create these ad hoc communities that are essentially mm-hmm. as themselves, as you said, constitutive of the subgroup. Like the subgroup mm-hmm. is defined by its agreements, its outrage agreements. Like, we are mm-hmm. angry at the same stuff. We're mad at the same things. This is how mm-hmm. we know who we are. You're not mad at this stuff. Mm-hmm. You are, therefore, you know, fill in the blank. Right. Right. A cuck. Yeah. 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 Isn't that a disgusting word? It's Jesus. really, yeah. It's really it's not. It's revolting. Right. Yeah. Swap out a vowel, though, and it's a good word. I'm just kidding. What is? <laughs> I said swap out a vowel, and it's a good word. But I was, you know, kidding. It's a oh, bad, that's bad right. joke. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I don't know that we've actually gotten to a place, and I was hoping, I was hoping to get to a place where I understood. We just like what figured out the anger and shit. This. Yeah, no, right, right, right. right? Me yeah, too, of like, course. Okay, so this is this is the magic formula. This is how you stop being angry. 
yeah, I I know I know that I don't want to live there. Though. Yeah, I know that. I, I, I mean, I can't I say do not want to live in anger. Yeah, I mean, I certainly being conscientious of of kind of where the I mean the argue the discussion. It's not really an argument. The discussion is kind of. Um, has run aground a little bit, which I actually think that's okay. I mean, this is a this is a massive mm-hmm. problem in America right now. I mean, I just and what do you do with it? I mean, I think I would I would go back to something that I thought of earlier, um, and then I'll actually let you have the last word, which is that mm-hmm. what do like what do I want? What do you want? What do people that are near and dear to me that I love um, mm-hmm. and people that I identify as kind of my intellectual. Uh, mm. peers, what do we want? Mm. You know, we want mm. we want a world in which um, there is equality of opportunity and mm. safety uh, to mm. pursue whatever freaky, bizarre outcome you might want for your one precious life. Mm. And that starts with, I would say, something like what the Buddhists call upaya, which is skillful means, right? It's like, how do you, mm. how do you save the people that don't know they need to be saved, right? So mm. in that instance, you're confronted with these very angry activists and you're angry. And I'm sure if I was there, I'd be even more angry than you because you, you have a cooler head than I do. So, uh, and, mm. But if, if it was my best version of myself, right? And I would, I would want to try to respond to them in such a way that allowed us to have a human encounter, to have a conversation, mm. even if we parted ways, not agreeing at all, and and mm. identifying ourselves as occupying different spaces or different wants, mm. that mm. I left feeling like I had connected with another human being. Um, mm. I think that's what we do. Now, how we do that, I don't know, but I'll let you have the last word. Well. Well, I have a I have a speculative idea, which is that, and I don't want to say this in a way that sounds all self righteous, but perhaps calling things by their right names, I do think it's important in that moment when people's hackles are up and they're not sure that they can continue being human beings with each other, mm-hmm. that we. Everyone in the room, anyone who's, who's so empowered, call that out and say, we're angry right now. What mm-hmm. we're doing is we're, is we're walking up to the lip of the precipice, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're angry and it's, it's preventing us from actually seeing each other. Mm-hmm. So we, not to say that that's going to sort of dissolve the anger, mm-hmm. but to acknowledge it mm-hmm. and to say that, yes, we're here and this is what we have to deal with. Um, and then, like uh, the characters in the play uh, by Ionesco, I think it is. Um, you know, the, what, no, is it Waiting for Godot? Waiting for Godot. Mm-hmm. The ones who say, the ones who say to themselves, I, I don't remember their names, but they say to, at some point, one says to the other, um, you know, shall we go? Shall we make a try? Um, and just say that to, and just say that to each other. Can we go? Can can we make a try? Uh, we can go, and we can make a try. Yes, uh, I appreciate it. Seth, thanks very much for the conversation, and uh, I'll speak to you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.